Chapter 20 of Faulkner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Angela Haug. Faulkner by Mary Shelley. Chapter 20. I do not know why I have dwelt on these circumstances so long. Let me hasten to finish. For two months, Gerard wandered in the neighborhood of Dromore. If he saw a lone cottage, embowered in trees, hidden in some green recess of the hills, sequestered and peaceful, he thought, perhaps my mother is there, and he clambered towards it, finding it at last, probably, a mere shepherd's hut, poverty-stricken and tenanted by a noisy family. His money was exhausted. He made a journey to Lancaster to sell his watch and then returned to Cumberland. His clothes, his shoes were worn out. Often he slept in the open air. Ewes, milk, cheese, and black bread were his fare. His hope was to find his mother, his fear to fall again into his father's hands. But as the first sentiment failed, his friendless condition grew more sad. He began to feel that he was indeed a feeble, helpless boy, abandoned by all. He thought nothing was left for him but to lie down and die. Meanwhile, he was noticed, and at last recognized by some of the tenants, and information reached his father of where he was. Unfortunately, the circumstance of his disappearance became public. It was put into the newspapers as a mysterious occurrence and the proud Sir Boyville found himself not only pitied on account of his wife's conduct, but suspected of cruelty towards his only child. At first he was himself frightened and miserable, but when he heard where Gerard was, and that he could be recovered at any time, these softer feelings were replaced by fury. He sent the tutor to possess himself of his son's person. He was seized with the help of a constable, treated more like a criminal than an unfortunate erring child, carried back to Buckinghamshire, shut up in a barricaded room, debarred from air and exercise, lectured, menaced, treated with indignity. The boy, hitherto accustomed to more than usual indulgence and freedom, was at first astonished and then wildly indignant at the treatment he suffered. He was told that he should not be set free till he submitted. He believed that to mean until he could give testimony against his mother. He resolved rather to die. Several times he endeavored to escape and was brought back and treated with fresh barbarity, his hands bound and stripes inflicted by menials, till, driven to despair, he at one time determined to starve himself and at another tried to bribe a servant to bring him poison. The trusting piety inculcated by his gentle mother was destroyed by the ill-judged cruelty of his father and his doltish substitute. It is painful to dwell on such circumstances, to think of a sensitive, helpless child treated with the brutality exercised towards a galley slave. Under this restraint, Gerard grew such as you saw him at Baden, sullen, ferocious, plunged into melancholy, delivered up to despair. 
It was some time before he discovered that the submission demanded of him was not to run away again. On learning this, he wrote to his father. He spoke with horror of the personal indignities he had endured, of his imprisonment, of the conduct of Mr. Carter. He did not mean it as such, but his letter grew into an affecting, irresistible appeal that even moved Sir Boyville. His stupid pride prevented him from showing the regret he felt. He still used the language of reproof and conditional pardon, but the tutor was dismissed and Gerard restored to liberty. Had his father been generous or just enough to show his regret, he might probably have obliterated the effects of his harshness. As it was, Gerard gave no thanks for a boon which saved his life but restored him to none of its social blessings. He was still friendless, still orphaned in his affections, still the memory of intolerable tyranny, the recurrence of which was threatened if he made an ill use of the freedom accorded him, clung like the shirt of Nessus, and his noble, ardent nature was lacerated by the intolerable recollection of slavish tears. You saw him at Baden, and it was at Baden that I also first knew him, you had left the baths when my mother and I arrived. We became acquainted with Sir Boyville. He was still handsome. He was rich. And those qualities of mine, which ill agreed with Alethea's finer nature, did not displease a fashionable woman of the world. Such was my mother. Something that was called an attachment sprang up, and they married. She preferred the situation of wife to that of widow, and he having been accustomed to the social comforts of a domestic circle, despite his disasters, disliked his bachelor state. They married, and I, just then eighteen, just out as it is called, became the sister of my beloved Gerard. I feel pride when I think of the services that I have rendered him. He had another fall from his horse not long after, or rather, again urging the animal down a precipice. It fell. He was underneath, and his leg was broken. During the long confinement that ensued, I was his faithful nurse and companion. Naturally lively, yet I could sympathize in his sorrows. By degrees I won his confidence. He told me all his story, all his feelings. He grew mild and soft under my influence. He grew to regret that he had been vanquished by adversity so as to become almost what he was accused of being, a frantic idiot. As he talked of his mother and the care she bestowed on his early years, he wept to think how unlike he was to the creature she had wished him to become. A desire to reform, to repair past faults, to school himself grew out of such talk. He threw off his sullenness and gloom, he became studious at the same time that he grew gentle. His education, which had proceeded but badly while he refused to lend his mind to improvement, was now the object of his own thoughts and exertions. Instead of careering wildly over the hills or being thrown under some tree delivered up to miserable reverie, he asked for masters and was continually seen with a book in his hands. The passion of his soul still subsisted, modulated by his new feelings. He continued to believe in the innocence of his mother, though he often doubted her existence. 
he longed inexpressibly to unveil the mystery that shrouded her fate. He devoted himself in his heart to discovering the truth. He resolved to occupy his whole life in the dear task of reinstating her in that cloudless purity of reputation which she intimately felt she had never deserved to forfeit. He considered the promise exacted from him by his father as preventing him from following up his design and as binding him till he was twenty-one. Till then he deferred his endeavors. No young spendthrift ever aspired for the attainment of the age of freedom and the possession of an estate as vehemently as did Gerard, for the hour which was to permit him to deliver himself wholly up to this task. Before that time arrived, I married. I wished to take him abroad with us, but the unfounded, as I believe, notion that the secret of his mother's fate is linked to the English shores made him dislike to leave his native country. It was only on our return that he consented to come as far as Marseilles to meet us. When he had reached the age of twenty-one, he announced to his father his resolve to discover his mother's fate. Sir Boyville was highly indignant. The only circumstance that at all mitigated the disgrace of his wife's flight was the oblivion into which she and all concerning her had sunk. To have new inquiries set on foot and the forgotten shame recalled to the memories of men appear not less wicked than insane. He remonstrated, he grew angry, he stormed, he forbade, but Gerard considered that time had set a limit to his authority and only withdrew in silence, not the less determined to pursue his own course. I need not say that he met with no success. A mystery so impenetrable at first does not acquire clearness after time has obscured the little ever known. Whatever were the real circumstances and feelings that occasioned her flight, however innocent she might then be, time has cemented his mother's union with another, and made her forget those she left behind. Or may I not say what I am inclined to believe, that though the violence of another was the cause at last of guilt in her, yet she pined for those she deserted, that her heart was soon broken, that the sod has long since covered her form, while the miserable man who caused all this evil is but too eager to observe a silence which prevents his name from being loaded with the execrations he deserves. I cannot help, therefore, regretting that Gerard insists upon discovering the obscure grave of his miserable mother, while he, who, whether living or dead, believes her to have been always innocent, is to be dissuaded by no arguments, still less by the angry denunciations of Sir Boyville, whose conduct throughout he looks on as being the primal cause of his mother's misfortunes. I have told you the tale, as nearly as I can, in the spirit in which Gerard himself would have communicated it. Such was my tacit pledge to him. Nor do I wish by my suspicions or conjectures to deprive him of your sympathy and the belief he wishes you to entertain of his mother's innocence. But truth will force its way, and who can think her wholly guiltless? Would to God! Oh, how often and how fervently have I prayed that Gerard were cured of the madness which renders his life a wild, 
unprofitable dream and, looking soberly on the past, consent to bury in oblivion misfortunes and errors which are beyond all cure and which it is worse than vain to remember. End of chapter 20 Recording by Angela Haug